Hello and welcome to the podcast where we chat about everything to do with classical music and much more. I'm Yolanda Brown and today I'm joined by the London Philharmonic Orchestra violinist Martin Herman, piccolo player Stuart McElwam and the organist, conductor and presenter Anna Lapwood. Welcome back to LPO Offstage, Martin and Stuart. And hello, Anna. It's wonderful that you're joining us today. Hi there. Hello. Well, as well as finding out about the ins and outs of life in the world of classical music, we also sometimes focus in on one piece here on LPO Offstage. So today it's the magnificent and awe-inspiring Symphony Number no. 3 by Camille Saint-Saëns, his organ symphony. Anna, you're playing the symphony with the LPO in November this year. Why is this piece so important to you as an organist? It's one of those things where you sit there waiting to play for an awfully long time, counting a lot of bars rest, listening to the orchestra play, totally immersed in the orchestral sound. Uh, and then the first entry, you're quite quiet. People can feel you a little bit, not necessarily hear you that well. But then in the middle of the big second movement, the huge organ chord that comes in, it never fails to make people either jump out of their skins if they're not expecting it or just put a massive smile on their face. And I think that's sort of the job of an organist. So yeah, it's a great piece to play. It's always a lot of fun. I liked how you, you spoke there about feeling the organ first. It's like that that rumbling. It really, really does shake you. Do you feel that when you're playing in your position? A hundred percent. And it's one of the reasons I, I love playing the instrument so much. I mean, it varies a little bit from organ to organ because they're all so different. But often you'll sit there and you'll play a chord and you feel the instrument rumble, but you also feel it shaking underneath your fingers. And so it feels like you're making music with a living thing. Oh, you describe it so amazingly. And straight away, I'm thinking about the practicalities. Martin, how often does the LPO perform with, with the organ? We do it quite regularly, I would say. We just had uh, the Glagolitic Mass as part of our last concert at the Festival Hall for the 22-23 season. And there are definitely similar moments that Anna just described. I mean, it, it's particularly at the Royal Festival Hall, it's just so powerful. I mean, it, it, even when you know it's coming, it can still really surprise and overwhelm you. And are there any particular challenges, Stuart, to playing with the organ? I know we've spoken on this podcast about what it was like even in lockdown, spreading out the orchestra and having to adjust. What sort of adjustments do you have to make when the organ is involved? Well, it could be a pitch thing, you know, because like, like the piano, the organ is tuned at a fixed pitch, you know. So you have to go with whatever their intonation is. It depends on how well maintained the organ is, of course. You know, if, if they're tuned regularly, it, it shouldn't be a problem. So, but in terms of the Samson, it all seems to gel quite nicely. Usually, there's never really been a particular intonation problem, you know, and uh, it leads from the front, especially in the Maestoso second movement. I think I always find it very, very impressive how, and that's more for the conductor, really, how organist and conductor can communicate at that distance i mean there's there's a little review mirror that i can see <laughs> which <Yes>. is <laughs> which is quite extraordinary that in, in these times we still rely on a little mirror to do the magic 
It's funny, I actually prefer having a mirror to having a camera because if you're looking at a screen, obviously it's a one-way process of communication. You can see what they're doing, but they can't see anything. They just see the back of your head. Whereas what I love it with a mirror because you can sort of smile at each other and say, yeah, here we go, we're going for it. I remember when I played at the proms a couple of years ago with Sir Mark Elder and he was sort of teasing me in the performance. He was sort of going, a little, little bit louder. And we had this kind of back and forth all the way through, which as an organist, you so often don't get. You're away from the other players, you're at a distance, as you say, and you can feel a little bit left out of things. We've spoken about time lag as well. Do you have to feel that as well? And are you kind of preempting what the conductor's doing? Does the conductor have to adapt how they cue you? It varies depending on the instrument, the whole, the piece. In the Sanson, not so much. Uh, there's a little bit of that, but uh, nowhere near as extreme as, say, in the Poulenc Organ Concerto, where you really are having to preempt. I did it at Bridgewater Hall recently, and occasionally you're having to kind of think a semiquaver ahead of where you actually are, which can be a little bit confusing. I did it once in a church where I was at the other end of the church to the orchestra, and it was just almost impossible in the rehearsals. So we ended up using an earpiece so I could hear the lead violinist in my ear and then just play with them instead. And it felt much more musical. So you learn to adapt quite quickly to a new venue and find a way around, even if sometimes that involves a little bit of technological help to keep it all together. We've spoken quite a bit about different instruments here on LPR stage. So I hope you'll indulge me as I geek out on the organ. I've seen many, many of your videos, Anna, and I love how you explain how the organ works. And I'm going to hone in on the Royal Festival Hall organ in just a minute. But first of all, just take us a very quick whistle stop tour of how the organ works. So the organ is essentially a whole load of whistles sitting on a massive bank of air. And what you're doing as the organist is you're deciding when you're going to let air flow through each whistle, if that makes sense. Uh, So if you make air flow through one little whistle by itself, it might sound a little bit like a flute. Another one might sound a little bit more like a violin. A larger whistle might sound a bit like a trumpet. Each pipe, each whistle is tuned and designed in a certain way and built in a certain way that means it makes a slightly different sound. So we then have the luxury of choosing which of the whistles, which of the pipes, which of the instruments of our magical orchestra we have out laid out in front of us. We get to choose which of those sounds we use when. It's when you start mixing the sounds that you get the sound most people associate with the organ. That's not one sound at all. That's a whole load of different stops that have been pulled out, a whole load of different pipes that have all been activated at the same time. So the stops, is that what lets the air through, basically? It opens and closes the air? Is that Am I right? Yeah, essentially. So if you pull out a certain stop, it basically allows air to flow through that set of pipes. So if you pull out the, um, let's say, the eight foot flute stop, so it will say, it will be a little kind of round thing that will say eight foot flute on it. You pull it out and it means that all of the eight foot flute pipes that correspond with that stop then potentially could have air flowing through them. It's then when you press a key that it decides sort of which 
air goes through which pipe. Okay, I think I, I understand that. And actually, we have wonderful questions coming from our listeners. So I'm going to delve right into that. From theology underscore nerd. This is to you, Anna. Your favourite organ stop on the Royal Festival Hall organ. Do you have one? Oh, you know what? I haven't played the Festival Hall organ in a really long time. I played there, it must have been five years ago or it was it was quite a long time um it was for the opening of the BAFTAs but I haven't been back since not because I don't want to I'm really excited about (laughs) coming back but I haven't been back since so I would be lying if I said I could remember my favorite stop from that point in time Mm. I do remember though loving the fact that it's a really fiery instrument I think that's going to be quite exciting for the sansol it's not a sort of polite English organ. It has a very kind of brash voice in a very exciting way. And when you need to cut through a whole symphony orchestra, that's a very helpful thing. Very good. Oh, well, we look forward to hearing that in full power. And I will ask you the question again on socials once, once you've done it in November. And tell us about that memory of playing the organ. I guess because you're coming in to play an instrument that already exists within the hall, how much relationship do you get with it before the performance? It's a really difficult thing because so often you're turning up and you have a quite limited period of time to learn how to play a new organ. I I try and explain it to people by saying it's a bit like going from driving a tractor to driving a Ferrari. That uh, it can feel as different as that. Not that I've ever driven either of those things, but I imagine it feels as different as that. And so actually now I just always insist on having as much time as possible to get to grips with that specific instrument, particularly if you're doing a full recital programme. If you're doing 70 minutes of music, you need time to get to know the character of the instrument and try Mm. things out and experiment and test out all the different sounds and find every ounce of colour you can. You do learn processes that kind of speed it up. You develop systems. So with the Sanson, I've played it in quite a few different places now. And I have a system when I just sit down and I go through from start to finish. And then I go back and tweak. And I've sped that process up and up and up to try and make it as time economic as possible, if that makes sense. Uh, But yeah, it is. It can be a bit of a challenge. And we've seen on your socials as well, that time that you do get to, to play the organ sometimes can be sort of in the midnight hour, if you like. Yeah, often these halls are so busy that the only time you can go in to do this work and play as loud as you want without disturbing everyone around you is the middle of the night. So at the Royal Albert Hall, my standard slot is midnight till six in the morning. And in fact, I'm doing that this evening. So I do that kind of once a month, sometimes more regularly. I've done four in the last month, so it's been a bit more intense. It's just a case of using the time you you can have in these extraordinary buildings. But I love being in there after hours, it's particularly like if it's a cathedral or something as well. It's so beautiful and not spooky at all no you get to know the character of the of the building in a different way right let's bring us back to the sasson because we we are deep diving into this martin do you remember when you first played this piece and also what does it mean for your instrument what's your instrument do within this i think we have some of the most beautiful violin lines in that second movement and so the second part of the first part the symphony comes in two big parts and they each have two sections to it. And it's when the organ comes in in the Poco Adagio and, uh, and we start playing this long tune. It's like, it's like kind of like a church hymn at that mm. point. The organ really sets the tone for that. And we get to sort of rise above it at the, at that point. The organ leaves us the space to do that. And it's, it's really extremely satisfying tune to play. What really inspires this is that what I always find fascinating with the organ is that 
The organ is an instrument that does not have any limits in terms of how much air it has. So when we play a tune, at some point we're going to run out of bow or a wind player might run out of breath. And you have to constantly work against losing that line. This, this is one of the things that so many conductors frequently ask us. Don't don't drop the line, sustain. And it's it's something that also you study when to do and you work really hard on, but it's it's quite tricky actually to do in practical musicians' life but while playing to always maintain that sort of similar volume. And the organ has that just by definition, really, because the airflow is constant. And so so the organ really supports the line that the violins are playing in in a way that is really hard to achieve with any other instrument group. That sets us all up, um, and it, it goes pretty high. It's quite exposed. It has a challenge, but it makes it more rewarding after all. Amazing. And Stuart, how does Sanson write for your instrument within this organ symphony? It's very varied. Again, you know, there are some long lyrical lines, but... Um, most of the flute action takes places in the two sections where there isn't actually any organ. The first half of the first movement, which after a sort of fairly slow introduction, becomes very active. And there's a very awkward semi-quaver movement that starts almost immediately. It's a semi-quaver off the beat. So it goes... And this figure goes all the way through the first movement. And it's really, really difficult to sustain, you know, because you're desperately trying not to get on the beat a lot of the time, you know, but you've got to be that semi-quaver out the whole time, you know. And the thing is, the notes are actually changing as well against what you would be expecting. So it's a little bit of a test for your for your mind as well. That's one big challenge. And then at the beginning of the second movement, which is a sort of like, I always think of it as the skirt, so, you know, um, that's a very fast movement. I had like three phases of getting to know this piece. I I won't go into them in detail, but I I had an old LP, which was called Hi-Fi Spectacular. And (laughs) And it just had the second section of the second movement on it. And that's the only bit of the Sanson organ symphony that I knew. And that was the bit with the big organ and fabulous, you know, I thought, amazing, you know. And I didn't get to know the rest of the piece until much later. And then I discovered that this was, there was the, the opening part to the second movement. And again, for years, I thought the rhythm was bugadagadum, 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 bugadagadum. In actual fact, it's bugadagadum, bugadagadum, bugadagadum. So I, it looped completely different to how I'd heard it for years. Wow. Um, but anyway, it's actually, again, you know, like the flutes are always employed, especially by French composers, because they were always pushing what was technically possible on the flute through the Paris Conservatoire and the whole French flute school. So there's lots of very fast sort of quaver passages and it's very, very sparkly and very bright, you know. So it's actually very challenging but rewarding to play from that point of view. I don't know if you've both found this, but I've found that the tempi that conductors choose can vary so drastically in this piece. I mean, almost like the most extreme versions. I So I did two performances last week and the main theme in one performance was like, 
da da da. It was really really slow. And in the other one, it was ba da 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 da. They were like totally different pieces of music. And I find that so interesting that this is a piece that can sort of divide opinion in that way. way do you think this is a piece that comes up quite a lot so is, is there a right way or do you sort of enjoy the challenge of whatever the conductor is going to bring to the table if you like martin it's up to the conductor to have an interpretation i mean for the first movement i did listen to our recording on the lpo live label and it's it is on the fast side but it is extremely exciting and what i <laughs> What made me laugh really quite a lot is that in the text that comes with the CD, it's, it, it, it talks about the nervous start of the strings to the symphony, which which is exactly how you feel when you start to play this <laughs> the symphony, because you don't really know what's going to happen. What uh, you know, everything that Stuart just described about starting on the offbeat with semiquavers is that's really the first proper thing you play in that in that symphony, and it kind of sets the tone for how potentially you feel throughout the performance because it's it's really difficult really really difficult but i i i sort of prefer i i would say for the beginning of the symphony because it says allegro moderato so it's not a presto it's not like as fast as you could possibly do it i would prefer it in a, at a bit more controlled speed not just as a player <laughs> anna how about for you uh, what was your preference I think it, it does change depending on the hall you're in and everything like this. And uh, I have enjoyed performing it at both extremes. I think the one performance I did where it felt like we really got that offbeat semi-quaver thing, absolutely, oh, I say we, I was sitting there counting bars rest at the time, but the orchestra <laughs> absolutely nailed that was in a, in one of the slower performances. And it had just this really exciting grip. And I remember actually several of the reviewers saying they hated it because of the tempo. But for me, it was it's been like the performance I keep thinking back to because I'm like, it's the only time that it was really together for the ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da Yeah, there's something really, really fascinating about how when an ensemble, uh, particularly an orchestra, plays really together at just 10% less of the speed. It can actually appear much more virtuosic than yeah. something that is that is hugely exciting and fast, but not quite together. It's a good point. I'm hearing lots of lovely little excerpts here as you sing parts of this uh, of this amazing piece. Is there a particular motif that comes back around that really stands out to you, Stuart? As I say, I, learned, I got to know this piece in, in installments, shall we say, you know. So when I first got my full recording, the first moment was all completely new to me. 
I actually really love, the, especially the first section of the first movement. It's incredibly powerful, you know, and it, and again, you know, with this very sort of active semiquaver passage work going through it, there's a bit uh, in the middle where there's a sort of counter melody that's in the in the French horns. All the semiquaver active thing is still going on, but you get this melody underneath it really being hammered out. And it's that, that sort of contrapuntal thing that I, I found really satisfying. I'm seeing a smile from Anna as well. Is there a motif that comes through for you during the piece or repeats throughout the piece that you really like? I think one of the things I love is how so much of it is built around the same sort of melodic idea. So the Dies Irae chant, da, 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 from the Mass for the Dead, that is the basis of the semiquaver thing that we've been talking about at the very, very beginning. And then yes. when you think of the main theme, sorry, I say the main theme, the main organ moment. Um, it, <laughs> My <where> moment. <laughs> the, the, the famous bit that everyone talks about, that's da-da-da-da-da-da. So it's the dies irae, but converted into the major. I always have a little smile when you hear the different versions of that theme occur all the way through. But my favourite bit is actually towards the end of the whole thing, there's this moment where the brass go bum, 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 and do this really funky triplet. And then there's a massive chord and then the organ does the same chord but half a bar later. So it like reinforces what's going on. And I remember trying to explain this to my dad on a walk. I was trying to explain that I promised to him that it was not me coming in half a bar late. It was meant to be like this. And so now whenever I play those chords, because they come back several times, whenever I play them, I think of him and I just grin. I love the fact this is a piece for me that acquires so many kind of lovely memories along the way. That is really, really... Now I'm going to be smiling every time I hear it too. (laughs) That's really nice. Is there a favourite part that you like to play, you know, I guess with long pieces of music, there are highlights, if you like, and are there bits that you look forward to uh, through this symphony, Stuart? In the last movement, especially near the end, you get some um, typical sort of piccolo shrieks that come in that you feel that for the first time in the piece you've actually can be heard. It's just part of the overall culmination of the piece. It's one of those pieces that falls into a category, you know, you don't have to worry about it too much because it's not like something that's really stressful that you see on the schedule coming up. And then it's not something where you've hardly got anything to play. It sort of sits nicely in the middle as a flute player, you know, it's sort of, it's a very nice piece to play without being completely roasted, you know. So we break off for a moment to ask something totally unrelated to this symphony. We have some new features in Series 6 of LPO Offstage and sometimes we jump in with a very quick-fire question. So here we go. What's it going to be? Let's start with Martin. A this or that question. You're touring with the orchestra. Do you prefer the United States or Europe? Europe. Oh, I'm going to have to ask why. That was a really definitive... I was expecting, (laughs) well, (laughs) you were very on the the decision there. No, on tour, I think Europe, there's uh, food is a big factor. And I just love the concert halls that we get to play in in Europe. I think the outstanding 
the only other country that maybe can match that outside of Europe is Asia. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, the quality of the of the concert halls, I just love traveling in Europe. All the different um, characteristics the countries uh, still have, and then all what you can experience there in, in, without going very far. Anna, you're on tour. Which would you pick, or which would you prefer, Europe or the US? Oh, I have two different answers for this, depending on whether okay. I'm going. In, if I'm going for, for food, which is how I like to determine quite a lot of my uh, travel, then I would say Europe. Food and wine, I think, combined. If I'm talking about instruments, I would probably say US because Ooh. the size of the organs in the US is just on a different scale. I mean, you get organs that have pianos inside, you have organs that have full batteries of percussion instruments inside. I went recently to the organ at Boardwalk Hall, which is one of the largest organs in the world, and I got to go inside an organ pipe as it was being played. I mean, it's extraordinary. And so, yeah, it's on a slightly different scale there. Inside an organ pipe while it's being played, I need I need to just delve a little bit deeper. This quick fire thing has just backfired, but that was that's amazing. Could you feel the air coming through? Did you have to wear ear defenders? How did that go down? I was inside a 32 foot pipe and it was one of the quiet 32 foot pipes. Otherwise, I would not have been inside it. But you can basically activate the pipe from underneath it as a tuning tool. I've got a video of it. It was loud, even though it's one of the quiet pipes and the air just rushes up so you see my hair basically stand up on end and yeah your ears kind of shake a little bit it leaves your head ringing for a while afterwards don't try this at home I would say it was under supervision (laughs) but uh, it was yeah it was pretty cool and what does that experience do for your playing you know going back then to playing an organ I know you could envision and you know what the organ does and what the instrument can do but does it change your relationship with the instrument at all those low, really, really, really low soft notes are some of my favourites anyway. I mean, in the, in the Saint-Saëns, in that adagio, when the organ first comes in, the thing I love is how the air shakes because you're playing the 32-foot, the soft 32-foot, or in some cases, the 64-foot. And so to know that whilst where you're sitting and where the audience are hearing it, it's this low, soft rumble. But if you were standing inside the organ pipe, it would be like the world was ending. It's, it's quite an interesting thing. <laughs> Very good. I'll allow that uh, not so quick fire answer. And the organs would win it for me. Forget food. Go go for the organs. <laughs> All right, Stuart, US or Europe for touring? I would have, probably have to go for Europe. Uh, I mean, mm. obviously, there are some fantastic venues in America, but there's a lot of um, B and C venues out there, you know, on a, on a three week tour. I mean, if you were in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, yeah, brilliant. But it doesn't often work out like that. But I think Europe, again, it's there's a connection with a lot of the music we play, you know, like the central European repertoire, you know, Brahms, Beethoven, Schumann, Schubert. You know, you sort of feel like when you're in, in Germany and Austria, there's a and some of the venues that you're playing in, you know, there's a connection with that music. Mm. And... Our most frequent destination is Germany, and it's a very civilised country to tour. Everything, all the infrastructure works very well, the travel, there's always somewhere to eat. And as Martin already said, the concert halls are are really fabulous, you know, by and large. 
And if you'd like to send in any of your own questions to the podcast, whether it's about favourite dishes, venues or how to pack for tour, please do email them to offstage at lpo.org.uk or simply get in touch with us on social media. We really want to hear from you. All right. I I have absolutely taken us off on a tangent. We are deep diving into Camille Sanson's Organ Symphony Number 3. In terms of the entrance, I'm going to, I've been dotting around this symphony. I've not done it in a, in a very sort of logical fashion. When does the organ come in, Stuart? The second section, which is almost like the slow movement, if you were comparing it to a standard symphony with four movements, it's like the adagio slow movement, is the first entry of the organ. And I have to confess, when I got my first recording of this piece, I, didn't, I wasn't actually aware that the organ was playing in this movement because it was very, very... It was in the days of cassettes, believe it or not, and I yes. listening on a little tape recorder, and I wasn't, didn't have the sort of the fidelity to register all the, all the different, you know, these very low notes that the organ can play. So am I right in saying the organ almost has a secondary role in, in this movement? You know, um, it's more of an accompaniment as adding yeah. to the colour of the accompaniment of, of the melodies that are played by, first of all, the violins. And then actually there's a very interesting bit of orchestration on the second time the theme comes. It's actually he uses clarinet, French horn and trombone, which is a very un- unusual combination of instruments in unison playing the melody. And it's a very particular colour and it's, it's quite unique, I think, in terms of orchestration, you know, which gives it a very special sound world. The point you made about the organ being secondary, I, this is something that I bang on about quite a lot because so often it's billed almost like an organ concerto. And so they'll kind of put the organist's name in lights and all this stuff. And I always say, no, it's not an organ concerto at all. It's a piece where the organ is meant to be part of the orchestra. And Saint-Saëns is just experimenting with how far he can push that in both directions, in terms of it playing a supporting role, but also then stepping out into the spotlight briefly, then coming back in again. And so, yeah, I think it's a really important thing to acknowledge that it is a symphony with an organ part as opposed to a concerto for organ and orchestra. What's quite interesting is that, you know, I've always been a a big collector of recordings and and things over the years of many, many pieces of which this is one. When I got my first LP of this, I actually discovered that the organ part was not recorded at the same time as the orchestra. And in actual fact, this is the case for a great number of recordings of this work that the organ was recorded in a different venue, probably a big cathedral somewhere, and yeah. then added to the orchestral recording at a later stage. And this was borne out in first-hand experience of me when I, I saw on my schedule, this was a recording with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, it said Sansom's Organ Symphony, you know, and it was done in, um, in Walthamstow Town Hall, and there was no organ. We just recorded it <laughs> without the organ. And then at some point an organist would have then laid down the track at a a later stage. That was the first time I think I played the piece as well. So I didn't experience it in live performance with an organ until a few years later, you know, eventually at the Royal Festival Hall. And I was just trying to work out, in fact, that I've done about five or six performances of this piece in my career, and they've all been at the Royal Festival Hall. So I've never never heard it in the flesh. 
with the organ yes. and orchestra together anywhere else than in the, the festival hall. But there is one recording that I've got, which I know for a fact is when they did have orchestra and organ together because it was recorded in Liverpool Cathedral. And it's a quite a famous old recording. It's with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, mm. conducted by a French conductor of, of yesteryear called Louis Fremo. It's a, a real collector's disc because it's a real sonic hi-fi spectacular, you know. Japanese record collectors will pay almost £100 for it if you've got a copy of it. It's funny enough, it's my favourite recording, and it's maybe because organ and orchestra and everybody are actually together in the one space. I saw shock horror on uh, Nana's face as you described that sort of the organ being added on. And Anna, I liked how you described what Sanson was doing there, bringing the organ as part of the orchestra, even though, you know, the top line is organ symphony. What do you think he was also trying to do with bringing a piano into the ensemble as well as an organ as well? Well, you know, I always feel really sorry for the pianists because they have the hardest job of anyone on the stage. They count more bars rest than I do. They, they don't come in until it's kind of in the first section of the second movement. So they don't right. even get the luxury of coming in in the adagio with me. And then they are playing these fiendish scales. So that it starts off with just one pianist who has to play these ridiculously fast scales and hit the top of the beat and if they miss it it's really obvious but they've been sitting counting bars rest for however long and then there's this moment where the second pianist has about 10 seconds to sit down on the on the piano bench having not been sitting there again really 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 fast really difficult but it's a lovely thing that happens when you do get that moment because it feels like such a textural shift from everything mm. else we've heard. I mean, it's such a distinctive sound, the piano. And to have two pianists working together, you almost, if, if you're not expecting it, you think, hang on a minute, what's going on? Are we in a different piece of music? I love the way he manages to surprise us with that after however many minutes of his writing, suddenly a, a totally new thing arrives. And Anna, you do such amazing work on social media, really making the organ more accessible and playing with fantastic artists that maybe wouldn't usually be akin to the organ. What would you say to somebody that's sort of broaching classical music, saying it's not for them? How would you sort of entice them to the genre and to the organ? Try and keep an open mind because classical music, classical musicians, the organ, any instrument that embodies such a huge range of musical styles. So even if you think you've heard, say, some organ playing and you're like, oh, I'm not entirely sure if that was for me, that's one aspect of it. You'll be able to find something that feels like a rave. You'll be able to find something that feels like a beautiful waltz. You can find little bits of any instrument that appeal to you. And it's being able to find those things and then follow the little kind of trail that takes you on to your next musical discovery and your next one and your next one. And I think that's the approach we all try and take as performers as well. We, we're we all trying to keep an open mind and you never know uh, the, the next thing that's going to catch your ear or, or kind of ignite a little spark of excitement in your brain and take you down a, a new musical journey for a while. And why is it so important for you to spread the word? I mean, your TikTok videos are fantastic, so informative, so joyful, so entertaining. But why is it important for you to sort of spread the word in this way? 
Well, I think part of it is trying to make sure that anyone and everyone feels like they belong in a classical concert venue, in churches as well, because the churches are not just places for people who believe in God. It's somewhere people can come just for a feeling of safety or a feeling of relaxation or whatever it is, or just appreciating beautiful music. But then I think the other side of it is the organ is an instrument where so often the organist is hidden from view. You don't really see what's going on. You're just being asked to listen without any visual stimuli. And that's not what we're used to. I mean, if you think about Britain's Got Talent or anything like that, it's always a kind of a visual spectacle as well as sound. And so I guess what I try to do is just bring people as close as possible to the experience of actually getting to play the instrument themselves, make it as if they are sitting right next to me on the organ bench. Because whenever you do get someone sitting on the organ bench, I've never had someone not go, oh my gosh, this is the most ridiculous instrument. This is so cool. Why do we not all know about this? Yes, absolutely so. And do you have any social media tips for musicians? I think, as you said, everything is visual now and it's not always easy to know what to share. Many. One of the big things is don't let it take up too much of your life. It shouldn't be your main thing. Your main thing should be about making music. And social media is something that can go alongside that. So trying to facilitate making that process as non-time consuming as possible. So for me, what I do is I just will always have my phone filming whenever I'm, I just put it up and then I forget about it whenever I'm rehearsing, Mm. whenever I'm practicing, whatever, because you just never know what it's going to capture. And then you just try and get into the habit of quickly, if you, something interesting happened, you stop recording and then start it again. And then you know that at the end of videos, there might be something which you can go in and clip and, and post. But then it's remembering that people respond to humanity. They respond to seeing the human side of being a musician. So my, one of my most successful videos was, in fact, me counting bars rest in the Sanson, waiting to come in <laughs> for the big organ entry. And I just explained the process that I was going, like, that is in, I explained why I was feeling a bit nervous and explained how I was trying to regulate those nerves. And it got something like 1.1 million likes on TikTok just with me counting bars rest. So humanity is a really, really important thing. It's so true. You want to see people in their element and sort of really living what they do. Stuart, do you have any advice for someone that wants to get into classical music, maybe thinking it's not quite their thing, uh, maybe it's too late, I don't get it. What's your advice to help somebody explore classical music? The great thing about music is not actually becoming a professional musician, it's appreciating it and, and letting it enrich your life, you know, because there's so much mm-hmm. out there that can be enjoyed. And there are vast swathes of, of our society that it's not because they don't like it, they just don't know about it. And tragically, you know, education, a basic education level, you know, classical music is now somewhat hidden from view. There are channels where people start to hear orchestral music, for example, if it's on the soundtrack of a film or on a video game. It's only a short step from there to appreciating, you know, a fantastic symphony or something that's probably not going to sound vastly different. And I think, you know, certainly with the LPO, we we try to be as inclusive and as welcoming and offering, you know, opportunities for people to come to concerts, whether there are fun harmonics, you know, or just making tickets much more available. It's not the exclusive high society event that I think some people might still perceive it to be. Really, really good advice there. Thank you so much, Anna, Martin and Stuart for your time today. It's been really great to hear your insights. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Anna Lapwood, Martin Herman and Stuart McElwam for that wonderful deep dive into Camille Saint-Saëns' Organ Symphony, Symphony Number no. 3. And of course, going off on our various tangents, I learned so much. I'm very much looking forward to the next performance of the Organ Symphony on the 22nd of November at the Royal Festival Hall with Anna Lapwood joining them on the organ. And if you'd like to send in one of your own questions for anyone here on the podcast, please email them to offstage at lpo.org.uk. Whether it's for touring tips or how to memorise a double bass part, we'd love to hear from you. Keep in touch on social media, Twitter, Instagram. And thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. I'll see you then. <laughs>